Log Talk Radio. All right. Yeah, so we are here. We are badly outnumbered. Uh, yeah, five to two. Five to two, yep. Uh, there are cats everywhere. Yeah, yeah. They have some zoomies going on. Yeah, is not staying with us. She's going to one of our guys. Yep. But it is zoomy time around here. So you will undoubtedly see other cats before we're all said and done here tonight. Oh. And they're off. I have no idea. They've done something with my comments feed again. <laughs> Thank you, Facebook. Facebook, okay, so stop messing those up. Come on. You got other things to deal with. Huh. Well, Patrick, Glenn, good evening. Glad you're here. And uh, yeah, if anybody else is here, if you want to go ahead and say hi in the chat, we are here to do something that is. Uh, oh, hi, Mom. <laughs> hi, Mommy. We're here to do something that's a little out of the ordinary tonight. So, yeah, we're, we're kind of setting the, uh, <laughs> we're setting the, uh, the, uh, the, the spirits and the ghosts kind of off, a little off the side for tonight. For the uh, metal apparition. Yes. Yeah, we're going to be talking about some different paranormal activity of the uh, extraterrestrial sorts tonight. Yes, because, so. well, you know, there's that nice big fat report coming in from Washington about uh, whether or not UFOs exist. Camel tell? Yeah. I don't know, but we were actually talking about doing this before that even. We were, yeah. yeah. And then this started coming out and saying that this report's coming out. I'm like, you know, it's time to do this. Very convenient timing. Uh, Very convenient. So, but anyway, so yeah, UFOs, aliens, men in black. We're going to cover it all. People from above. Sky Sorry. people, sky gods, uh, yeah. as they were referred to back in Egypt. Yeah, I, I didn't think to make up some tinfoil hats for us. Don't waste my tinfoil. No, no, not going to waste your tinfoil. But anyway, so yeah, now, if you've ever studied astronomy, uh, you've probably been exposed to something called the Drake Equation. Now, if you haven't heard of it, no big deal. It's mostly for people that are kind of involved in astronomy, but on one side of said equation, you'll find the number of civilizations in our galaxy with which it might be possible for us to communicate. So, yes, we're talking about intelligent life like us or more advanced than us on other planets elsewhere in the galaxy. But then on the other side of the equation, you have the variables that add up to said number. Now, this would include, like, the mean rate of star formation and technical stuff like that. But a lot then, of math I'm not going to do. But, and uh, other things like the, the fraction of stars that have planets around them. Uh, factors regarding a planet's ability to support life. And then factors about an intelligent civilization's ability to communicate. So, some of those you can actually go ahead and measure. Other ones, you start getting into philosophical type stuff. So, this is why we're always looking for water and things like that when we go to other things. Yeah, so depending on how you run these numbers and the assumptions that you decide to make, assumptions, big thing, the answers can be anywhere between, well, zero and, well, untold, untold billion. Um, now, obviously, the answer is not zero because, well, we exist. So there's, it's something greater than zero because there's at least us here in the universe. Uh, and to quote astrophysicist Frank Drake, who formulated the equation back in 1951, by the way, he did that at the University of Rochester, my hometown. 
He said that it's really a way of showing all the things you need to know to predict how hard it's going to be to detect extraterrestrial life. Or to put it a bit more directly, fellow astrophysicist Katie Mack says the point of the equation is really to show how little we know. Because there's a big open space out there that we don't know about. Yes, there is. So this is where the imagination comes in. So generations have been putting, uh, you know, for generations we've been putting our collective uh, creative minds to work and guessing if extraterrestrials exist, what they might look like, and how we're going to greet them and they us, whether with a sign of peace or whether we wind up staring down the business end of an intergalactic ray cannon or something like that. Fingers crossed that doesn't happen. So for as long as we've imagined these extraterrestrials, they look pretty much like us. Humanoid. Um, you know, anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism, I think I'm right. <laughs> yeah. Which is basically the whole idea of putting things that are not human in human form is pretty much constant. We do it all the time. So hence you've got the typical two legs, two arms, and a head. As for how they traveled, a couple centuries ago they actually came from galleons in the sky. Uh, when zeppelins were invented, aliens flew in dirigibles. And after World War II, they came in flying saucers, the latest and greatest technology that we could possibly imagine. So according to a study by Chapman University just a few years ago in 2018, just a little over 41% of Americans believe that extraterrestrials had visited Earth at some time or another, and about 35% believe that they have done so in recent times. There are understandable reasons uh, for such beliefs, as for decades, some people have been convinced that the U.S. government has been harboring secrets about visitors from afar ever since July 8, 1947, with the famous incident in Roswell, New Mexico. The truth surrounding the Roswell incident has been kept tightly under wraps, letting rampant speculation fill in the gaps. And this filling in of the blanks is basic human nature. It's only been very recently that the cone of silence from the government and the military has started to crack. In recent weeks, news stories about UFOs or UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena, as the Pentagon likes to call them, of course, they can't just use simple layman's terms. Why would they do that? But anyway, these, uh, these stories, uh, they, they've been widespread. As dozens of video recordings and photos have been substantiated, substantiated by officials as truly unexplainable encounters. So while it is certainly premature to speculate as to whether these flying objects come from another world, it has certainly helped to fuel the questions about what the Pentagon knows about such incidents and others like them. These recent admissions, however, still don't touch on some of the more foreboding reports of alien abductions and unwanted experiments. There are many who have sworn to their final breath that they were probed by little gray men and the plentiful tales of mutilated livestock. They all provide conspiracy theorists with lots of fuel for their thoughts. That said, not all of the speculation is of the grim cloak and dagger variety. There is, of course, popular culture and has helped fill in the blanks as well, resulting in gems like Independence Day, The Men in Black, Star Trek, and more. Not to mention the video games, books, and conventions that deal with alien encounters, or you could just outright Google Roswell McDonald, and I promise you will not be disappointed. Perfect. Yeah, it, it's something it's something to behold. So from time immemorial, humans have wondered about whether we're alone. 
Just because the popular culture diverges from scientific theory doesn't invalidate the idea that we may one day encounter life forms from other worlds. Now, in short, what exactly is a UFO? It is basically a flying object that looks or moves unlike any aircraft used by the U.S. or any foreign country. There have been numerous UFO sightings throughout history, but the rate of reports seems to be climbing in recent years. If we truly are being visited by intergalactic visitors, this increase in reporting may not only be due to more frequent visitations, but also due to our own progression of technology that has made it more likely to encounter extraterrestrial and easier to record and report these encounters. In any case, the countless encounters that have been that have occurred to date have left us with more than just a collection of dusty government reports. Some of these stories are truly fascinating or chilling, or both, which brings us to our first story of the evening. Yeah, so there was obviously a ton of stories out there, and I wasn't going to dive into a lot of the um, abductions and just generalized stories. So I, d- I dug into a few specific ones, and I actually went all the way back to colonial times. And uh, we're looking at the first recorded encounter that took place on March 1st of 1639. John Winthrop opened his diary, in which he reports, or his diary, excuse me, in which he recorded the trials and triumphs of his fellow Puritans as they made a new life here in America. As the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, he took to recording his latest entry and began to recount an unusual, you know, please don't knock over the camera, <laughs> you know. Here we go. Okay. Venus chasing kittens. Anyway, so uh, he began to recount this most unusual event that had recently caused a stir among the settlers. Winthrop wrote that earlier in the year, James Everall, a sober, discreet man, and two others had been rowing a boat in the muddy river, which flowed through the swampland and emptied into a cattle basin in the Charles River. When they saw a great light in the night sky, they reported that when it stood still, it flamed up and was about three yards square. When it ran, it was contracted into a figure of a swine. Over the course of two to three hours, the boatman said that the mysterious light ran as swift as an arrow, darting back and forth between them and the village of Charleston, a distance of approximately two miles. Winters added that diverse and other credible persons saw the same light after about the same place. The governor wrote that when the strange apparition finally faded away, the three men in the boat were sent to find themselves a mile up the street, as if the light had transported them there. The men had no memory of their rowing against the tide, although it's possible they could have been carried by the wind or a reverse tidal flow. Some theorized that the reposition of the boat could suggest that they were unaware of part of their experience and that they may actually uh, might have been one of the first reported victims of an alien encounter. Skeptics have said that the curious glow could have been the burning of swamp gas, which can cause an interesting light phenomenon. This explanation has also been used for will-o'-wisps and the creatures that terminate a common book glow. And Winthrop's report was correct, however, that the light was not rising from the swamp but shooting across the sky. It makes that explanation, of course, unlikely. An odd sight to return to the skies of Boston five years later, according to another entry in his diary, dated January 18th of 1644. 
About midnight, three men coming on a boat to Boston saw two lights rise up out of the water near the north point of the town's boat in a form like a man and went at a small distance to the town. And so to the south point, there vanished away. Just a week later, Winthrop wrote yet again another unexplained celestial event that occurred over Boston Harbor. A light like the moon rose about the northeast point in Boston at the former at a novel island, and there they closed and won and then parted, and closed and parted the first time, and so went over the hills in the island and vanished. Sometimes they shot out flames, sometimes sparks. This was about 8 o'clock in the evening and was seen by many. The governor's count also continued to say that about the same time, a voice was heard upon the water between Boston and Dorchester, calling out in the most dreadful manner, Boys! Boy, come away, come away. And it suddenly shifted from one place to another a great distance of about 20 miles and was heard by a diverse, godly person. About 14 days after, the same voice in the same dreadful manner was heard by others by the other side of the town toward, uh, towards Nautilus Island. Unlike 1639 UFO, we had an explanation for the latest luminescence over the city upon the hill. The governor noted that a bizarre spectacle was seen near the location where a vessel captained by John Craddock had exploded months earlier after a sailor had accidentally ignited the gunpowder aboard the ship. The captain was not about the time, and the, the blast had killed five crew members. Winthrop noted that the noted that the rescuers had recovered the bodies of all the victims except for the man believed responsible for this landing. A sailor who confessed to the ability to communicate with the dead and who was suspected of murdering his master in Virginia. The hand of the devil was thought to have taken possession of the body, and it was the honking voice of a sailor's ghost who was said to accompany the strange vision of the old UFO that mystified Boston. Turns out we can't completely escape, of course, our tales of the dead when we talk about UFOs because, well, we like them both. <laughs> Yep, Mr. Beaconland. 
Dunbar, native of Scotland, was, among other things, somewhat of an amateur astronomer, and luck would have it, only a year before that April night in Baton Rouge, he had once been introduced to the most famous man in the world at the time, Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson at the time was vice president of the United States and unwanted consolation prize for finishing second to John Adams in the race to replace George Washington. Of course, throughout his life, Jefferson collected many titles from his former um, excuse me, as his former sovereign George the King George, and in April of 1800, he happened to be serving as president of the American Philosophical Society, which meant that he practically every single morsel of gossip Dunbar shared with the organization's members ended up making it into their newsletter. On page 25 of the sixth volume of Transactions of the American Philosophical Society, the story Dunbar shared with Jefferson about what he saw about Rouge is faithfully retold. It was described a description of a singular phenomenon seen at Baton Rouge by William Dunbar Esquire, communicated by Thomas Jefferson, President APS. I'm going to paraphrase. There we go. A phenomenon was seen passing Baton Rouge on the night of April 5, 1800, to which I can offer the following description. It was first seen in the southwest and was so rapidly passing over the heads of the spectators as to disappear to the northeast in about a quarter of a minute. It appeared to be in the size of a large house, roughly 70 or 80 feet long. It appeared to be about 200 yards above the surface of the earth, fully illuminated but not emitting sparks. Its color resembled a crimson red sun near the horizon on a cold, frosty evening. It's passing right over the heads of spectators that cast a light on the ground like a midday sun. But while looking another way, the stars were visible and passing a considerable degree of heat which felt no electric sensation. Immediately after it disappeared in the northeast, the violent rushing noise was heard and its phenomenon was bearing down on the forest before. And in a few seconds, a tremendous crash was heard similar to that of a large piece of ordnance causing a very sensible earthquake. I have been informed that the search has been made in the place where the burning body fell and a considerable portion of the surface of the earth was found broken up and every vegetable body burned or greatly scorched. I have not yet received answers to the number of quarries I have sent on which may perhaps bring to light more particulars. William Dunbar quickly became one of Jefferson's favorite sources and by all accounts, the two remained friends until Dunbar's death in 1810. Indeed, while Jefferson's impact on Louisiana's history is difficult to rival, Dunbar also earned a legitimate footnote. Some of the fun things you get to be when you're about to be president. Oh, yeah. And speaking of presidents, that actually takes us to, um, well, the center of federal power here in the United States, Washington, D.C., and an uh, incident that was came to be known as the oh, Vincent is apparently aging through the script. Vincent has learned how to use tablets. I lost my place. And wants to be the new office. He, he's trying so hard to help us off his team. Yes, he is. Uh, he's our little <laughs> So, the big flap, as it was known, back in 1952. This was the year that America caught flying saucer fever. So when a rash of strange sightings was reported guys over Washington, D.C. that summer, the press and the public demanded answers. 
where these unexplained radar blitz crashed that in some cases outran jets, part of a nuclear-armed Soviet invasion, or were they evidence of something far more mysterious? The Washington, D.C. sightings of July 1952, also again known as the Big Flat, hold a special place in the history of unidentified flying objects. Major American newspapers were reporting multiple credible sightings by civilian and military radar operators and pilots, so many that Special Intelligence Unit of the U.S. Air Force was sent in to investigate. What they found, or rather didn't find, along with the Air Force's official explanation, fueled some of the earliest conspiracy theories about a government plot to hide evidence of alien life. Now, it all started actually back in 1947 when a search and rescue pilot named Kenneth Arnold reported nine saucer-like things flying like teeth in a diagonal chain line at speeds exceeding 1,000 miles per hour near Mount Rainier in Washington State. Within weeks, flying saucer sightings had been reported in 40 other states. In the name of national security, Air Force General Nathan Twinning launched Project Sign, which was named Saucer. They, they love their acronyms, whatever they all stand for. This was started in 1948, and it was the first official military intelligence program to collect information on UFO sightings. Its investigators dismissed the vast majority as hoaxes or misidentifications of known aircraft or natural phenomena, but a few cases remained unexplained. By 1952, the UFO investigation unit was called Project Blue Book, led by Captain Edward Ruppel at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Ruppel and his team would probably have continued to investigate a couple dozen sightings a month, if not for the April 1952 issue of Life Magazine. Just a knockout cover shot of Marilyn Monroe ran an equally eye-catching headline, There is a case for interplanetary saucers. The article written with Ruppelt's full cooperation explained the Air Force's national security interests in UFOs, and it made a convincing case that these unidentified objects were of extraterrestrial in origin. As one rocket scientist working on secret projects for the U.S. told life, I'm completely convinced that they have an out-of-world basis. Now, according to the Washington Post, the number of UFO sightings reported to the Air Force jumped more than six-fold from 23 in March of 1952 to 148 in June of that same year. By July, the precise conditions were in place for a wildfire of UFO mania, widespread Cold War anxiety, mainstream press coverage of unexplained UFO incidents, and, well, a healthy dose of midsummer madness, if you will. All that was needed was spark. And that spark would be delivered shortly before midnight on Saturday, July 19th. Oh, what do you know? Happy anniversary of 1952. That evening, air traffic controller Edward Nugent at Washington National Airport, which is now known as Reagan Airport, spotted seven slow-moving objects on his radar screen far from any known civilian or military flight path. He called over his supervisor and joked about a fleet of flying saucers. At the same time, two more air traffic controllers at National spotted a strange bright light hovering in the distance that suddenly zipped away at incredible speed. At nearby Andrews Air Force Base, radar operators were getting the same unidentified blips 
slow and clustered at first, then racing away at speeds exceeding 7,000 miles an hour. Looking out his tower window, one Andrew's air controller saw what he described as an orange ball of fire trailing a tail. A commercial pilot cruising over the Virginia and Washington area reported six streaking bright lights like falling stars without tails. When the radar operators at National watched the object buzz past the White House and Capitol Building, the UFO joke stopped. Two F-94 interceptor jets were scrambled, but each time they approached locations appearing on the radar screen, the mysterious blips would disappear. By dawn on July 20th, the objects were gone. Nobody bothered to tell Rupp Elk, the Air Force's lead Project Blue Book investigator, about the sighting. He found out a few days later when he flew to Washington, D.C. and read news reports. Rupp Elk Elk tried to get out to National Airport and Andrews to interview radar operators and air traffic controllers, but was denied a government-issued car or even cab fare, for that matter. Frustrated, he flew back to Ohio with nothing. The very next Saturday, the UFOs were back over the nation's capital. Again, Ruppelt found out through a phone call from a reporter and immediately called on two Air Force colleagues to check out the situation at National. The same radar blips were back, and radar operators wondered out loud if the dozen or so objects on their screen could be caused by temperature inversion, which is a common phenomenon in DC's hot, muggy summer months. A temperature inversion occurs when a layer of warm air forms in the low atmosphere, trapping cooler air beneath. Radar signals can bounce off this layer at shallow angles and mistakenly show near-ground objects as appearing in the sky. Ruffelt's Air Force colleagues, however, were convinced that the objects on the radar screen weren't mirages but solid aircraft. To be safe, two more F-94 jets were scrambled to chase down the unidentified targets appearing on radar screens at both National and Andrews. A game of high-speed whack-a-mole ensued, where the jets would race to a location targeted by radar only for the blips to vanish. Finally, one of the jet pilots caught sight of a bright light in the distance and gave chase. The pilot later recalled, I tried to make contact with the bogeys below 1,000 feet. I saw several bright lights. I was at maximum speed, but even then, I had no closing speed. I ceased chasing them because I saw no chance in overtaking them. The next day, newspaper headlines across America screamed, saucers swarm over capital, and jets chase D.C. sky ghosts. The publicity and public panic over the sightings were so great that President Harry Truman himself had aid to get answers. When they called Ruppelt, he said he... It could have been caused by a temperature inversion, but more investigation was needed to fully explain both the radar images and the credible eyewitness account. But before such an in-depth investigation could take place, the Air Force called a press conference, the longest such news event since World War II, and the Air Force brass had decided, without consulting Ruppelt or the Project Blue Book team, that the best response to the sightings was to feed the press and the public an easy to swallow explanation. Dodging specific questions about what pilots and radar operators had seen in the skies over the Capitol, Major General John Stamford came back again and again to the temperature inversion theory. Never mind that Ruffles had since come to the opposite conclusion. After some additional thought, the radar operators had ruled out inversion. 
Those operators knew what conversions looked like, and this was not the same thing at all. To Ruppelt's disappointment, the Air Force's press conference worked exactly as planned. The papers reported the temperature inversion story, and the public largely seemed to accept it. In his 1956 book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, Ruppelt reports that after the press conference, UFO sightings dropped from 50 a day to 10. Skeptics, however, weren't satisfied with the government response. Many accused Air Force and Project Blue Book investigators of devious behavior and of possessing secret knowledge. It wasn't until Project Blue Book documents were made public in 1985 that UFO sleuths could see that the closest thing to a government cover-up of UFO sightings in the nation's capital was actually a conspiracy of ignorance. The document proves that the government thought it was in everyone's best interest to act like they knew it all and to keep people from realizing that they didn't have all the answers. And they wonder why I would question the government. Trust issues. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like every time it says it disappears, it's around all manner of spooky in Louisiana. Oh, yes, there is. Spooky in Washington State, too? Yep. Marilyn Monroe versus the Aliens. Why wasn't that ever a movie? Good question. Instead, we got Cowboys versus Aliens. Or was it Cowboys and Aliens? Cowboys and Aliens. Either way, it was a terrible movie. Yeah. Oh, what was his name? Uh, Daniel Craig was in that. Bad choice. Yeah. Bad choice. That was actually a star-flooded cast. Daniel yeah. Craig, I forget who else was in it, but... It was still a bad choice. Yeah. <laughs> Bad script. All right. Let's jump over to the Midwest and North Dakota and the dogfight with the UFOs. This one was fun. Continuing with our incidents investigated by Captain Ruppelt, uh, consider this next one, a Gorman dogfight amongst the most classic of the UFO stories. The incident involved a 27-minute air, air encounter uh, between a veteran of World War II fighter pilot named George F. Gorman and a mysterious white orb at a high altitude above Fargo. At the time, the encounter was on October 1st, 1948, and Gorman himself said he would have considered anyone else telling his own tale to be crazy. So, at the time of the incident, Gorman was 25 years old, a former fighter pilot, and he had served as second lieutenant in the North Dakota Air National Guard. It was this role that placed him behind the flight controls of a P-51 Mustang on said date. He was taking part in a cross-country flight alongside other National Guardsmen. While the other pilots landed at Fargo at Hector Airport on that fateful evening, Gorman stayed in the air in order to get some night flying time in during the cloudless conditions. Having circled his P-51 over a lighted football stadium, he was preparing to land at about 9 p.m. Advised by the control tower that the only other plane in the vicinity was a Piper Cub, which Gorman could see about 500 feet below him. He witnessed what he believed to be the taillight of another craft passing on the right, so the tower had no other object on the radar. Deciding to take a closer look at the unidentified object, Gorman pulled his plane up and closed within about 1,000 yards. It was about six to eight inches in diameter, clear white, and completely without fuzz at the edges. He said the object, or he described the object in his report. It was blinking on and off, and as I approached, 
The light suddenly became steady and pulled to a sharp left bank. I thought it was a camera. Activity. 
although this was later explained away as a side effect of the high-altitude flying that took place. Was Gorman a fraud or maybe just touched in the head from his war experiences? Government investigators found him to be a credible witness. Noting he did not make it an impression of being a dreamer, he reads little and only serious literature. He spends 90% of his time hunting and fishing, drinks less than moderately, smokes normally, and does not do drugs. He appears to be a sincere and serious individual who is considerably puzzled by the experiences and made no attempt to blow up his story. One conspiracy theory speculates that Gorman's encounter may have been with a top secret test craft. With World War II, a very recent memory, tensions in 1948 were heightened in both military and civilian circles. As the Cold War tightened its grip on American psyche, the U.S. government sought to boost scientific firepower with clandestine initiative called Operation Paperclip uh, through its former recruited, or its recruited former Nazi scientists, engineers, and technicians coming to America. Now, they were, of course, hoping to boom the nation's chances with the Cold War looming and the space race. Further afield, the Soviets had begun testing the R-1 rocket in the same year as Gorman's encounter, raising questions of whether this might have been a Soviet craft or weapon. Again, likely no. The R-1 didn't have the range to go from Soviet launch site to Fargo, and it was a quote-unquote dumb rocket. They used aerodynamics mostly to guide them, and they could do slow maneuvers, but if they did a fast maneuver, they would start to disintegrate under the G-course. Then there were the additional reports and uh, explanations. Back in Fargo, after the Air Weather Service revealed they released a lighted weather balloon 10 minutes before Gorman saw the object, investigators pounced for claiming the balloon was the likeliest explanation for the object seen. As for the seemingly incredible movements witnessed, the report said those were due to Gorman's own maneuvers as he tried to chase the bright object. Essentially, the investigators wrote that his high speed gave the balloon the appearance of moving in the opposite direction as he passed by. Added to that theory, investigators noted that bright appearance of Jupiter on that day, uh, hypothesizing Gorman had been attempting to chase the bright dot of the planet at the same time that the weather balloon was in range. A lighted weather balloon would become the official cause of the encounter in the Project Blue Book file. Whether Gorman was happy with the official outcome remains unknown, maintaining his silence, he returned to the Air Force full-time, eventually retiring at the rank of Lieutenant Colonel in 1969. He never spoke publicly about the encounter again, though according to the Bismarck Tribune, he did tell his friends he was never convinced he had been dueling with a lighted balloon for 27 minutes. Now, Gorman did die in 1982. Nico, please don't play by the camera. You can't see what we're saying. I'm going to have to chase the kitten. <laughs> you see the camera's moving. <laughs> Excuse me for we, my reach. We got, we got spicy cats abound tonight. Come here, Nico. <laughs> You're hiding behind the camera. Oh, hello, spicy one. Okay. Let's go for a quick walk, shall we? Excuse me. Okay, first. So now we are going to move on to uh, back going over to Kentucky, as a matter of fact. So um, there was a, only six days into 1976, three friends by the names of, names of Mona Stafford, Louise Smith, and Elaine Thomas 
was sharing experience truly out of this world. Excuse the pun. Now, not only would each be witness to an up-close UFO sighting, they would be victims of an apparent abduction while driving their vehicle home along a quiet Kentucky road after celebrating Mona's 36th birthday at a restaurant. A massive investigation followed the women's experience, and researchers remained in contact with the three abductees not only to investigate the events of that evening, but to study any long-lasting effects from such an encounter. In all, the Kentucky incident is considered a credible account with several credible witnesses. So after dining at the Redwood Restaurant in Lancaster, Kentucky, the three women who had been best friends for many years set off back down US 27 to their hometown of Liberty. It was 11.15 in the evening on January 6th of 1976, and the journey should take them no more than 45 minutes. Louise was driving, although not a designated driver, <clears throat> although not technically a designated driver, as none of the witnesses had consumed any alcohol that evening. As they were traveling down Highway 78, all three of the women noticed a strange object in the sky glowing a bright red color. Now, at first, Mona believed the object was a plane that was about to crash, but as the object drew closer, they could clearly make it out to be a metallic gray disc with a glowing dome on top. A line of red lights moved around the middle of the disc while further red and yellow lights emerged from the underside. There was also the presence of a bluish beam which emanated from the bottom of the craft. As the flying disc got closer to the car, Louise discovered she had no longer had control of the vehicle, which was now careening down the road at over 80 miles an hour. Mona would reach from the passenger seat in an attempt to help Louise gain control of the car. However, the steering wheel remained locked. The craft continued along with them. At one point, the blue beam shined inside the car, illuminating the entire interior in a pale blue wash. Louise would later recall that the vehicle began to fill with a haze-like air, a sort of fog. Shortly after, each woman began to feel an intense burning sensation and pain in their head. A bump momentarily stopped the car before it was violently pulled backwards. That was the last thing that any of the women remembered before they blacked out. The next thing each of them knew, they were back on the quiet road with the car in motion heading towards Liberty. Each recalled the events, but not how they arrived at their current position. All could still feel the burning sensation on their bodies, and each woman was beyond confused and frightened. They continued the small part of their journey to Louise's home. However, when they stepped inside, they discovered the time was 1.20 a.m. Their 45-minute journey had taken over two hours, meaning there was an 80-minute window that couldn't be accounted for. They would contact both local police and the local Navy recruiting station in an attempt to speak with someone about the episode, although neither could help. The Navy office would pass the details to a Lexington television station who, in turn, broke the story to the wider media. That the Navy told the story to the local media. Well, they're not the Air Force. This is true. There is that. But anyways, once UFO researchers and investigators received word of the bizarre incident, they would descend on the small town of Liberty. UFO investigator Jerry Black was the first to contact the three women in an attempt to explore just what was in the skies that night. The three witnesses were more than reluctant to speak with Black, or anyone else for that matter, at least to begin with. They eventually agreed, however, 
and an initial interview was set up. The three women were suffering great anxiety regarding the incident. Each was also still suffering pain from the burning sensation, and each was struggling with maintaining a focus in their day-to-day lives. Perhaps worst of all was the fear of what we don't know, and the 80 minutes that remained a blank. To uncover those minutes, Black convinced them to engage in hypnotic regression, and the results of the sensations were eye-opening. There were plenty of points that Black would note upon his first conversations with the three women. For example, as well as eye infections from the burning that they felt in the car, Louise had a half-dollar-sized pink-gray mark on the back of her neck. Even more unusual was the reaction of her pet parakeet, parakeet, which would usually greet her happily upon her arrival home. On the evening following the incident, however, it displayed actions of fear even attempting to escape and flying into the side of its cage. This reaction had continued when she approached the cage since then. As an interesting side note, Black would have Louise approach other test birds, which had much the same reaction as her own. Louise's wristwatch was also an interesting detail, with the minute hand moving at the pace of the second hand for some time after. She would also experience persistent electrical problems with her car's head and signal light. Aside from the mental stress that each woman was undoubtedly under, each of them was generally unwell as a result of their ordeal. Because of this, it was decided to postpone any further investigation and hypnotic regression temporarily. Their case, however, would soon come to the attention of respected UFO investigator Dr. Leo Leo Sprinkle. As before, the three witnesses were apprehensive to participate despite still suffering the same anxiety as before. When it was agreed that none of the information from the sessions would be made available to the wider UFO community until they gave their permission to do so, they agreed to take part in the investigation. Although the initial hypnosis sessions were tentative ones, the follow-up sessions in July 1976 were much more revealing. They would also contain lie detector tests conducted by Detective James Young of Lexington Police Department. Each woman passed the test with no hint of deception. When the car had experienced the bump, which was each woman's last conscious memory, it had been lifted by some strange traction beam into the craft. Each woman would be subjected to a physical examination, and each recalled their bodies held down by a force they couldn't locate. Their bodies were scanned, and they could occasionally feel an unpleasant pressure on their limbs. Each woman would also recall a strange, warm liquid which was carefully applied to their face and upper body. All three would describe shadowy figures that would float or glide around them. Every now and then, they would notice eyes hovering over them. Despite the haziness of the descriptions, all described these figures as humanoid with jagged hands around four feet tall. Although they couldn't recall the content of the communication in any detail, Each woman would state that the strange humanoids would use telepathy to to talk to them. Mona would later further recall that she was at one point looking down at a table. On it was a helpless woman with several creatures dressed in white examining her. She wasn't sure if it was one of her friends or even herself who she was viewing from an out-of-body experience. Unbeknown to the three women was that other witnesses had seen something strange that night in the vicinity of their apparent abduction. Furthermore, these sightings also, be, also came within the same time frame. 
At just after 11.30, an anonymous, anonymous couple would report a large luminous object fly over their house. Two teenagers who were driving near uh, to the Angel Manufacturing Plant in Stanford witnessed a disc-shaped object. They would report red-orange lights around the side. Several other people would make reports to local police that evening of reddish-orange lights in, uh, in the night sky. Perhaps one of the most interesting of these apparent corroborating reports will come from the owner of the farmhouse only yards from the abduction site. The owner of the property claimed to have seen a low-flying object just down the road from his farm. What was most bizarre about this low-flying object was the beam of light it shot to the ground. All of these reports match the craft described by Louise, Elaine, and Mona. What is perhaps most unnerving for these secondary witnesses is they appear to have watched an abduction unfolding before them. The two teenagers who would seem witness the craft either heading towards or from the three women. The farmer almost certainly saw the actual abduction of them when he witnessed the beam of light, and the anonymous couple likely saw the craft taking off with their prize heading to a destination unknown. It is still officially at least unexplained. The intricate detail in this most intriguing case, however, makes it one of the most impressive in terms of credibility. It is also perhaps telling how none of the three women involved have faced any resistance to their account. Couldn't talk about UFOs without having at least one apparent abduction. Yep. And that was Nico flashing by. <laughs> because. Nico. Because kittens. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> This my last story? Uh, no. This yeah. is the Black Triangle. Yeah, we got mm. oh, Black Triangle from the Men in Black, right? Well, no, we got Jimmy Carter on there, too. We got time. We're good. Okay. So the Black Triangle. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, within the larger mystery of the UFO phenomena is another unsolved puzzle. Why do so many of the reports involve strange triangular-shaped craft? Often described as dark in color, virtually noiseless, and the size of a football field or larger. What are they? And why have so many witnessed hovering or moving slowly and methodical? In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the triangular UFO reports hailed from across the U.S. and beyond. During the 60s, at the height of the Cold War UFO fever, mysterious flying triangles were reported over Connecticut, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Texas as well as in London, Madrid, and Czechoslovakia. In 1990, uh, excuse me, 1969, the two National Guard pilots tailed a triangular-shaped object 50 feet in diameter for 20 minutes over San Juan, Puerto Rico, until they ran low on fuel and had to return to their base. Many of these incidences could be attributed by officials to atmospheric conditions, weather balloons, and other everyday sources, but some remained unexplained. Excuse me. Between 1983 and 1986, a notable rash of mass sightings occurred in New York's Hudson Valley, some 50 miles north of New York City. One witness, Kevin Servalia, a retired lieutenant from the Yorktown Police Department, described a huge silent craft 100 yards from wingtip to wingtip, hovering low, at which banked and made a 45-degree turn before abruptly speeding off. He called Stewart Air Force Base in nearby Newburgh to determine whether one of its C-5 transport planes, at that point in time the world's largest and heaviest aircraft, had been in the skies that night. None had. 
Later that year, Hulky triangular UFO hovering over the stretch of New York's Titanic Parkway prompted a huge traffic pileup and scores motorists stopped to get a better look. We're rubbing rubbernecking with UFOs now. <laughs> Just saying. Similar incidents have continued in the region for several years. Many witnesses describe what they perceive to be the craft's extraordinarily extraordinary. Extraordinarily? No, extraordinary. I try to put extra syllables in there. Extraordinary abilities. One evening, late November 1989, two police officers on patrol in Epperin, Belgium, not far from the German border, spotted an odd triangular object overhead. In the ensuing days, hundreds of Belgians reported similar UFOs describing in the news reports a triangular object with bright red center light or as a flying platform with three huge searchlights. In March of 1990, the Belgian Air Force set up two F-16 fighter jets to get a closer look at one of the triangles that had been spotted on the radar. Their onboard computers recorded the object's um, remarkable maneuverability and its ability to accelerate from 1,000 kilometers per hour, about 621 miles per hour, to 1,800 kilometers per hour, about 1,120 miles per hour, within seconds. Those are some breakneck Gs. Oof. I caught that. With the computers registered, exceeded the limits of conventional aviation at the time, and the Belgian Air Force colonel told reporters. In 97, in Phoenix, Arizona, a UF, uh, basically became a UFO hotspot when some 30,000 local residents saw something strange in the sky. Some reports said that the mysterious object was V-shaped, but many described it as triangular. It was a triangle shape that had three lights. It was moving very slowly, and an 11-year-old Cub Scout was quoted as saying, a retired airline pilot described the size of 25 airliners, and it didn't make a sound. Others described it as the size of three football fields. In 2000, police officers uh, from neighboring municipalities in southern Illinois were called to investigate a trucker's report of a massive arrowhead-shaped craft hovering low in the sky, two stories high, and as long as a football field. Dispatch tapes revealed the shock and the awe expressed by different law enforcement teams who were all in radio contact with each other. The National UFO Reporting Center, which cataloged more than 8,100 sightings of triangle-shaped UFOs since the early 1960s, lists more than 200 in the first half of 2020. That's your folks. They're out there. Yep. They're still watching. The truth is out there. I failed. I failed. Knew it all. All right. Many of these sightings have been investigated reportedly by UFO sleuths. The Belgian triangles have been explained as stars, planets, balloons, or blimps, with a bit of mass hallucination thrown in. The lights of Phoenix were dismissed as flares dropped during an Air National Guard exercise, although that theory has many skeptics. Some say New York sightings were a hoax perpetrated by the local stunt pilots flying in a formation. One explanation raises the possibility of an airship effect. That's the theory that people who have seen unrelated lights in the sky can simply trick themselves into believing that they're all part of the same object. Three lights must be a triangular spaceship. Three lights hundreds of yards apart must be a really big triangular airship. Other speculation has focused on the top-secret aircraft. Although the U.S. government has largely stayed mummed on the matter, it's common knowledge that the Air Force has experimented with triangular and V-shaped aircraft 
for decades, including the B-52 Spirit stealth bombers and the F-117 Nighthawks. Other possibilities are kept under wraps. Sightings near the clandestine biplane test facility at Air, uh, Area 51 in Nevada may indeed be connected to test flights on some of these crafts. However, the extraordinary size of many witnesses describing all of this is puzzling. For Marler and others, the volume of sightings and the consistency of the craft covering behavior combined with their unexplained sudden accelerations point away from known military technology. If it's not homegrown, then what? One theory suggests that these crafts are engaging in mapping the sensitive sites. The Southern Illinois sightings occurred within one or two miles of Scott Air Force Base, home to the Air Mobility Command, which coordinates all global transportation for American troops. And the Hudson Valley sightings happened so close in proximity to Stewart Air Force Base. And Mellon has interviewed multiple Persian Gulf veterans who have witnessed triangular crafts near sensitive, sensitive military operations. An adversary planning a future attack would want to know every inch of that battlefield, he said. So, battlefield. 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 Global talking about. Battlefield. Talking about. Global battlefield. Yeah. Just saying, they're scouting. Especially as for wood. I don't want to know. You don't want I like my ignorance. Hmm. As Patrick said, he thinks he'll avoid the aliens and just stick to looking for ghost dogs, Pat. Yep. Second that. I second that, too. All right, so we also mentioned Jimmy Carter had an experience, and this was actually before he was president. Yeah. I didn't know if you wanted to trade. Okay. I'm good. Okay. Um, so this was <clears throat> September 18th of 19. Jimmy Carter filed a report with the International UFO Bureau claiming he had seen a UFO in October of 1969. Uh, during the presidential campaign of 1976, Democratic challenger Carter was forthcoming about his belief he had seen a UFO. He described waiting outside for a Lions Club meeting in Leary, Georgia, and to begin at about 7.30 p.m., when he spotted what he called the darndest thing I've ever seen. Carter, as well uh, as 10 to 12 people, witnessed the same event and described the object as very bright with changing colors about the size of the moon. Carter reported that the object hovered about 30 degrees above the horizon and moved towards the earth in a way before disappearing into the distance. He later told a reporter that after the experience, he vowed never again to ridicule anyone who claimed to have seen a UFO. During the presidential campaign, Carter promised that if elected, he would encourage the government release of every piece of information about UFOs available to the public and to scientists. After winning the presidency, though Carter backed away from this pledge, he was saying that the release of some information might have defensive implications and pose a threat to national security. And you wonder why he didn't get a second term. Mm -hmm. He saw the Book of Secrets. <clears throat> Yeah, you, you can't renege on a promise like that. I'm going to tell you all about the aliens. Mm, no, I'm not going to tell you about the aliens. Or using their technology. Uh, well, one final story for tonight. We're going to touch on the uh, the last part of our trifecta, if you will. Of course, we've mentioned UFOs, aliens, and finally, men in black. Men in black. 
Now, of course, this isn't going to be the Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith type variety, unfortunately. Bring him on. As entertaining as that was. Uh, but, uh, oh, so, but, yeah, that, it really is It's kind of very fascinating, though, the, the story behind this. So it's possible that the story of the men in black, the mysterious figures that will become the subject of fascination in USO, UFO conspiracy circles and eventually break into my mainstream popular culture, can be traced back to one day on June 27th of 1947. And it's also quite possible that it all started with a man, a boy, and a dog in a boat. <laughs> yeah. So, as the story goes, Harold Dahl was on a con- conservation mission on the Puget Sound near the eastern shore of Washington State's Maury Island when he saw six donut-shaped objects hovering about a mile and, uh, excuse me, a half a mile above his boat. Before long, one of them fell nearly 1,500 feet, followed by raining metallic debris, some of which hit Dahl's son, Charles, on the arm, as well as the family dog, who unfortunately did not survive the ordeal. Dahl was able to take some pictures of the aircraft with his camera, which he later showed to his supervisor, Fred Christmas. A skeptical Christman went back to the scene to look for himself and saw a strange aircraft with his own eyes. The following morning, <coughs> excuse me, the following morning, Dahl was visited by a man in a black suit. They end up at a local diner where the man was able to recount in extraordinary detail what Dahl had just experienced. What I have said is proof to you that I know a great deal more about this experience of yours than you will want to believe, the man said. Dahl was told not to speak of the incident. If he did, bad things would happen. This was before they had the thing that erased your memory? Yeah, apparently they weren't, uh, they were a little bit more, uh, a little more threatening about it. A little more monster? Yeah, a little more monster, I think. So, <laughs> now, the supposed events of Maury Island have continued to fuel conspiracy theories to this day, even though a U.S. government investigation deemed it a hoax after Dahl and Crimson later admitted as much. In particular, the mention of the man in black suit would evolve into a key obsession for UFO enthusiasts and spread into American popular culture thanks to a comic book series and, of course, the blockbuster movie trilogy. Now, in all their different incarnations, the men in black usually have one main purpose, to muzzle witnesses of strange paranormal phenomena. They almost always wear black suits with hats with dark sunglasses, drive black cars, and arrive in groups of two or three. Some describe them as one would an FBI agent, while others recall the men in black as having strange appearances, sometimes with supernatural features like glowing eyes and strange complexions. So how did we get from Harold's doll to well, Will Smith? <laughs> Some would explain it away as a conspiracy-laden game of telephone. Sticking with the telephone analogy, the first witness in line was Kenneth Arnold, a pilot who had his own alleged UFO sighting on June 24, 1947, near Mount Rainier, Washington. Though it happened three days after the Maury Island incident, it was the first widely reported sighting, and it touched off the saucer sensation as was written in a 1949 government report on flying saucers. The report states that Dahl and Crimson reached out to a Chicago magazine in an attempt to sell their story, and the magazine editor then contacted Arnold, hoping he could help verify their account. Arnold then summoned two officers of Army A2 Intelligence to aid in the investigation of Dahl and Crimson's claims. 
In July of 1947, the two Army officers came to investigate. However, after completing their investigation and leaving in their B-25 the next day, the plane caught fire and crashed, killing both the officers and doing nothing to quiet UFO conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theorists. But the Maury Island story gained little notice in the UFO community until 1956, when the book They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers by Gary Barker was published referring to the Maury Island case. The book was based on the writings of Ray Palmer, a Chicago magazine editor referred to in the government's report. And the book went on to connect the dots between the man who wore a black suit who took doll to breakfast and three similarly dressed men who allegedly visited a young UFO enthusiast named Albert K. Bender in 1953. It was Bender who almost single-handedly ushered in the, the plague of the men in black, if you want to call it that, just as Arnold inaugurated the era of the UFO. UFOologist, yes, that is a thing, UFOologist, Nick Redfern wrote in his book, The Real Men in Black, but um, wrote about that in uh, his book, The Real Men in Black, excuse me, commas, punctuation, stuff like that. Uh, now, it was... Gary Barker's book, however, that told Bender's story, thus introducing the concept of the men in black to a much wider audience. Barker described Bender's visitors as three men in black suits with threatening expressions on their faces, three men who walked in on you and make certain demands, three men who know what you know and what the saucers really are. Bender, in his own 1962 book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, described the men in black in much more frightening language. He wrote, they floated about a foot off the floor. They looked like clergymen, but wore hats similar to Hamburg style. Their faces were not clearly discernible, for the hats partly hid and shaded them. The eyes of all three figures suddenly lit up like flashlight balls. They seemed to burn into my very soul as the pain above my eyes became almost unbearable. Flashy, flashy light, except it was their eyes. Yeah, we're entering into the world of sci-fi and horror. <laughs> Barker would go on to write several more books related to the paranormal and UFOs, including 1970's The Silver Bridge, which helped spread the story of another uh, popular paranormal figure, the creature known as Mothman. Yeah, now kind of a little bit of a tangent there. But anyways, uh, but how much of his writing was done in good faith has been called into question by many in the UFO research community. Barker made it clear that he did not take the men in black or Mothman very seriously, says Schaefer, who course, uh, corresponded with Barker on occasion. However, he believed that there <laughs> was still something mysterious about the whole UFO and paranormal thing. Regardless of Barker's motives, countless men in black encounters have been reported since they knew too much about flying saucers was published 65 years ago. Roberta just asked if we flashy flashy them. Maybe. <laughs> that would be a fun drop to have. All right, folks, so that is it for UFOs, Men in Black, and stop. I'm done. Uh, <laughs> aliens. <laughs> oh, we will be back in two weeks. Uh, post scarce care, so if you are in Williamsburg, so you last weekend of July, uh, please come out and see us because we will be at the Scarce But Care Convention at the Doubletree. Yep. Uh, you can get day passes. You can get a weekend pass. There are for sale on the Scarce But Care website. Uh, definitely come and see us there. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Pia. Yeah, I heard a maker. 